Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Friday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Today is the first official national holiday of Juneteenth. President Joe Biden signed the bill into law yesterday. So we can't rest for the promise of equality is fulfilled for every one of us in every corner of this nation. That, to me, is the meaning of Juneteenth. That's what it's about. And we'll have more on Juneteenth in just a moment when I'm joined by Tiffany Player, Georgia State Assistant Professor of History. Having enslaved people hear this proclamation that the people of Texas um, are informed that all slaves are free was a powerful message that Granger was delivering alongside African-American men who had risked their physical safety to usher in the end of the institution of slavery. That conversation and more in just a moment. But first this, Vice President Kamala Harris travels to Atlanta today as part of a COVID-19 vaccination push by the White House. With just a few weeks left, Vice President Harris's visit is part of a national tour on behalf of the White House's Month of Action. The hope is to encourage more Americans to get vaccinated before the July 4th holiday, which President Biden is hoping to reach a 70% vaccination rate in the nation. Speaking of which, Georgia's top public health official says it could be months before a large majority of residents get vaccinated against COVID-19. But Dr. Kathleen Toomey told reporters Thursday she does think the state will reach that point. I truly believe between now and, and certainly by the fall, we will be much closer to that 70-80% vaccination rate that we are, are striving to achieve. More than a dozen states have already reached the Biden administration's goal of 70% of adults having at least one dose by July 4th. According to state data, only 42% of Georgians have started the vaccination process. As mentioned, today is the first official national holiday of Juneteenth, and there are a lot of events taking place. Here in Atlanta, the Juneteenth Atlanta Parade and Music Festival kicks off today and runs through Sunday with a series of events, and a parade will be held tomorrow at noon. It travels down Auburn Avenue from the King Center to Centennial Olympic Park. Also on Saturday in Gwinnett County, a Juneteenth celebration will be held at Rhodes Jordan Park from 11 a.m. until 4 p.m. And up in Cobb County, the Cobb County branch of the NAACP is hosting a free Juneteenth cultural festival on Saturday and will be held at Glover Park on Marietta Square. It starts at 10 a.m. and runs through 7 p.m. And Indicator, the Beacon Hill Black Alliance for Human Rights, is hosting a Juneteenth celebration on Saturday at the City Square from 4 to 8 p.m. And finally, it's going to be very loud inside State Farm Arena tonight as the Atlanta Hawks look to end their second-round playoff series with the Philadelphia 76ers. Win, and it's on to the NBA Eastern Conference Championship Series. A loss means it's a decisive Game 7. Let's see what happens. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Recently on the program, we began examining the Buckhead City Movement. Now, you may recall I already spoke with former state representative Ed Lindsay, who co-founded the Committee for United Atlanta. That group is opposed to the Buckhead City movement. However, there are proponents for Buckhead City, and they are pushing for lawmakers to pass the necessary legislation 
Next year, they will let Buckhead residents vote on whether or not to create the new city. So now we turn to Bill White, CEO and chair of the Buckhead City Committee, formerly known as the Buckhead Exploratory Committee. Mr. Bill White, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Oh, hi, Rose. How are you? My mother and father-in-law listen to your show all the time, and they told me uh, to say hello. Well, I appreciate that, and greetings to them as well. Let, yes, let's, ma'am. Let's begin here, Bill, because you all have gone from an exploratory committee to the Buckhead City Committee. Why? Well, uh, a couple of things. So we have spent the last year exploring, uh, and that was a very in-depth process. You know, this is not a uh, willy-nilly uh, fly-by-night organization. This is about 100 people strong who are subject matter experts. Many of them uh, actually work for the city of Atlanta and other cities that have DNX like uh, Sandy Springs or Brookhaven or Milton or others, uh, folks who have done the actual bond work, you know, for the city of Atlanta, people who are volunteering, police chiefs, uh, sewer experts, water experts, uh, pothole infrastructure experts. So this is a long kind of very deep due diligence process. And I guess we say in summarizing that we moved from exploring to Buckhead City Committee when we did two things. Mm-hmm. One, we filed for divorce at City Hall. Uh, no one was there working, by the way. Um, there was no one to be found, but we dropped the papers off uh, from Mayor Bottoms and left them respectfully for her to review. Mm-hmm. And second thing is we have uh, two cityhood bills. So we have one in the Assembly, mm-hmm. one in the Senate, and that will be taken up in the upcoming session. So that kind of propelled us forward uh, to being the Buckhead City Committee at this point. You all use a terminology filing for divorce, meaning you all feel there is no way to reconcile whatever issues, and we're going to get into those in a moment, whatever those sure. issues are that you feel like the city of Atlanta is not providing in terms of services. So let's start with that. That is what you mean as you refer to dropping off divorce papers. Yes. Well, yeah, you know, I'm not trying to be cute with it. And and divorce is a very serious thing. I'm a Mm -hmm. great believer in marriage and trying to work it out. Uh, But at the same time, when you have certain irreconcilable differences, uh, civilly, there's not much you can do. You don't have a lot of options. If no one's listening, no one's doing anything, no one's responding to you. You don't feel like you have a seat at the table. You're not being treated uh, equally uh, in the eyes of the jurisdiction that you've Mm -hmm. uh, basically elected to take care of you and protect you and defend you and keep you safe and not create what's going on now is the feeling of literally we feel like we're living in a war zone. Okay, well, we'll get to that in in a moment. Um, Sure. Go ahead. I'll let you finish. No, Uh, no, no. Just that's the that's the sense of it. Like if if the mayor, by the way, I have never even heard from Mayor Bottoms. She doesn't need to call me. Um, she could address these issues. The city could, uh, but, but I've not heard a word from from her or anyone. When you say they uh, haven't addressed city the Hall. issues, you mean they haven't addressed issues with your committee, or they haven't addressed issues, period, as relates both. to. Yeah, both. Everything, both. They haven't reached out to us. They haven't addressed the issues. I could list all eighty of them if you have the time. Well, let's let's back up. Was there a feasibility study conducted as relates to this? Yes. Okay. Yes. So so with regard to the feasibility study, the Georgia legislature, if they're going to put uh, permission for this to go on the ballot, they require a feasibility study to mm-hmm. be completed by an independent uh, operation. And that's currently underway, Rose. That'll be about uh, 12 weeks. It's a very comprehensive review of literally the tax rolls, the sales tax, the revenue Uh, the funding, the major center of issues that we've applied for cityhood on, which is emergency fire police and OEM, infrastructure and zoning, right? So you have to pick your main areas Mm -hmm. on on, uh, uh, the major concerns, and those were ours. Also for our listeners, geographically, what would be the Buckhead City boundaries here? Yes, so I can send you uh, a, a copy of the map. Maybe that can be put up on the website. I'm not really good at explaining exactly, uh, you know, from the house number to the house number, but it kind of looks like the Chevron of Ohio goes from uh, the Chattahoochee, Sandy Springs, all the way across over to DeKalb, down to uh, on the southeastern side, Brookwood Hills, 
uh, in the adjacent area on the south uh, western side. So does it include it parts of does it include parts of Buford Highway? Uh, no, ma'am. So it stops at Lenox Road and Buford Highway. Yeah, I would have to show you the map because, again, I'm not exactly familiar with the precise addresses mm -hmm. where we have a cutoff. Uh, we actually had a community, Brookwood Hills, who was not uh, in the map, and they traditionally are in what's called Greater uh, Buckhead, mm -hmm. and they actually did a petition of their 350 households whether Buckhead City should be uh, permitted to go on the ballot or not. Is that, near, is that near Piedmont Hospital? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Let me ask you this, Bill. So that's about, what, 87,000 plus we're talking about population-wise? Am I off? Oh, yeah. You know your stuff. Yeah, it's about that. It could be as high as 90. could be down to 78,000. I've heard different estimates of our precinct numbers. You mm -hmm. know, uh, again, we're talking legally registered voters. So you're basing the map. population off of legally registered voters in Buckhead. That's correct. Let that's me ask correct. you this. Buckhead is nearly close to half of Atlanta's total tax digest as well, correct? Uh, it's just under 40%. Okay. It's about 40%. Let's round it up. Mr. White, you mentioned a lot in terms of the reasons, but if you had to list the top three, what are the main reasons behind your group's desire to succeed from Atlanta and develop your own city? Yes. Yeah, so so maybe because I'm from New York and... Um, I love the city so much. I, I try to shy away from that word. I'm not correcting you or anybody, but uh, the folks I've talked to here don't like the word secede. Well, you used divorce um, earlier, so what's yeah, kind of yeah, the no, difference? No. Well, secede, there's a little bit of that north and south history there, and it's just some stuff people feel it could be a little painful. I know divorce is definitely painful, uh, but legally it's actually a de-annexation. Give me those top main reasons, Mr. Well. Uh, I'll, I'll bring in a, a great answer, too. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Kasim Reed has talked about running for mayor again. He's announced that he's doing that. Do you know what his major issue is? It's three things. It's crime, crime and crime. And that's funny because. Is that your main three saying. reasons? Is that I want to yeah. focus on your group. Yes. So crime is the main reason, because we know there's an increase in crime, not just in Buckhead, but all over the city and in a lot of the major cities throughout the nation. Do you feel like, because the Buckhead is also experiencing this crime wave, that APD is not enough presence there? What is the, the issue then as relates to crime and, and APD? Right. Well, I, I think it's not a very simple answer, Rose, and it's really a much larger conversation. You mm -hmm. know, studying the, the crime trends that we've been looking at talking to national police leaders who've made very unsafe cities, large cities safe, you know, what policies they instituted, what worked, what didn't work, um, force structure, resources, tax dollars, things like that. Those are all factors in how you fight crime and try to assess and predict crime and be intelligent on uh, efficient professional policing, right? We're not talking about uh, the bad apples. We're not talking about um, you know, the unionized issues and pensions and payment and recognition, there is a huge vacuum of leadership. You say, um, which I totally respect and appreciate, that crime is up all over in these big cities. And I think one of the main reasons why crime is not down in all of those big cities is because of the lack of leadership and the lack of the judicial process. From where? Lack of leadership at city government in terms of the mayor, the chief the police chiefs uh, from the well, courts okay. across yeah, the board. Oh, sure, is that what you're saying? Sure, all that. How do you see having your own police force being able to do a better job than the Atlanta Police Department? Aha. Uh -huh. Well, that's a great question, and I thank you for for going to that. Right, because what what would be different? And there's many stages of this. So what I would say in the beginning, when you asked me what the problems were, there were four pillars of that. Mm -hmm. Number one would be to have leadership that would allow the police to simply do their job. Two would be resources, right? The proper amount of resources of a city's budget to go toward getting the crime under control. Number two, 
pay Buckhead City Police Department. Unfortunately, we're going to have to pay them uh, a lot more money than APD is paying their officers, 400 or so. I, some people say 200. I don't like playing with numbers. I don't know the accurate number. But somewhere in between 200 and 400 APD officers have quit in the last year. We're talking to many of them. The second thing is right now, Buckhead, which is, you know, zone two, Rose, mm-hmm. is, uh, there, there, there are 80 uh, police officers in zone two. I think it's 82 uh, now. What we are talking about for a short but very visible, potentially, you know, prolonged period of time, short could mean, you know, four to six years, maybe less, there would be a substantially significant increase from that number of 82 to approximately 200 to 300 officers in Zone 2, which would then be Buckhead City. There have been crimes committed at the many of the Buckhead bars or folks who live in Buckhead. Are you going to ask the Buckhead bars and that district to also straighten up and maybe have tighter security? Because there have been a lot of activity at some of those late night Buckhead bars? Are you all addressing that as well? Because that's all part of the, the crime wave too, you know? Yeah. Yes, ma'am. No, that's a, that's an extremely good point. We have talked to some of the owners who are doing, instituting their own additional protection. Um, and we do need to talk to all of those folks. I don't know what it will take, but that's being studied right now by one of our task force groups about the late night entertainment uh, businesses. You know, you don't want to, have to curtail businesses, but there may be a, a requirement for city ordinances mm-hmm. on uh, when establishments open, when they close, uh, if they have violations, you know, give them a chance to operate smartly. Let's pause for a moment because sure, you obviously you mentioned pay, so you have to pay for those services along with the other services. Because when I spoke with former longtime state lawmaker Ed Lindsay, who's with the group United Atlanta Opposed to Buckhead City, he made several claims regarding your group. And I want you to take a listen because I want you to be able to respond to it. Sure. What's going to happen, for instance, to our city school? The schools are owned by the Atlanta public school system. But if you de-annex from the city of Atlanta, those students are no longer in the APS footprint. So what happens to them? Where do they go to school? That's a question that this organization has not answered. You then have uh, additional questions, for instance, about uh, what to do with the city parks that are located in Buckhead. Mm-hmm. How do you acquire them? How much are you going to have to pay for them? What are you going to do about uh, fire service and how that uh, those buildings are going to be purchased and paid for? So, Mr. White, I want to give you an opportunity to respond. Let's start with the school system. <laughs> how do you all yeah. propose developing a school district here? Well, uh, unfortunately, Ed has been uh, out of the state legislature for some time. Um, I don't know if you know this, but I love hearing uh, folks' opinions about Buckhead who have sold their homes in Buckhead and moved to Brookhaven. That's where uh, Ed Lindsay lives now. But does and he have a valid people. point about the, about uh, your public I'll school get, system? Let's focus uh, on well, that. It's our public school system. It's not mine or Buckhead's. It's our public How school system. How do you propose developing a school district? If you let me answer, I will get to it. My opinion is the one you're asking, and I'd like to make it. Make your opinion, please. Thank you. So the current plan with regard to our great public schools here in Atlanta, right? Do you know what the reading and arithmetic scores are in the Atlanta public school system right now? Mr. White, what is your, how do you, Mr. White, how do you all propose developing school district? The Atlanta public schools will still be where our children are going to go to school. Ed is incorrect. That's number one. But we will be a very vocal voice as a new city for how we get those scores up for our great Atlanta and Buckhead City residents who send their beautiful children to these schools and where they're not getting a return on the investment. There are billions going into Atlanta public school system and the scores are horrendous. We have to get those scores up. So Ed is wrong on that. Number two, he said so many things there, Rose, like. I'd have to write them down, but he talked about we'd have to set up uh, firehouses and police cars and uh, fire stations and police stations. Again, he's wrong. There's judicial precedents, for instance, in Sandy Springs, where those taxpayers have already 
bought all those things with their taxpayer dollars. Those are court rulings, Rose. So Ed likes to talk about those things, but unfortunately, he's wrong. One of the other things he mentioned, I think, was parks. We're so excited about parks. Um, he, he mentioned something about we, we'd have to buy the parks. I don't know who we're, who we're buying the parks from. We've already paid for the parks with our tax dollars. So when this actually does come into play and there's a negotiation between the two parties, I'm sure it's going to be a very successful, amicable negotiation between the city of Atlanta and Buckhead City. My original question, because with all due respect, Mr. Wright, you did not answer how do you all propose to developing a school district. But I do want to ask you this, because as you know, I didn't say, I'm sorry, I didn't say we're developing. I'm telling you what we're doing. So I don't you just know talked what, about getting test scores up, but that's not about you haven't given any guidelines in terms of how you all. You said you all will still remain in the Atlanta public that's schools, exactly but you right. haven't now talked you, about right. what that would look like. Let me ask you this, because, as you know, it doesn't look it doesn't look any differently than it does right now. They're going to go to the same schools. So what's different? The only thing that's going to be different is we're going to have a very vo- vocal voice on saying what's happening in those schools you right now you, is you, not you all don't have enough. a vocal voice now with APS no you have board no, representation on the school board is it still right. Nancy Meister am I correct we will have a much stronger voice in the situation I'm describing when you take control back uh, from these crazy policies you will absolutely have a stronger voice and I think it will one be one that'll be rational it'll be common sense it'll be fair It'll be helpful, and hopefully it'll be listened to. In terms of, as you know, with school districts, and I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I have done my research, that there is also, right now, or as it relates to, a little bit under $590 million in bond debt. This is from property taxes. Would that not be owed to the city of Atlanta? Wouldn't you all have to pay that? Well, that's a great question, too. Uh, and that will be part of the negotiation. We, of course, are going to honor our portion of whatever continuing obligations are there. Uh, why wouldn't we? We love Atlanta, and we want Atlanta to be successful. Where would the so money come part- from? Where would the money come from, Mr. White? Where would what money come from? If you all owe the city of Atlanta $588 million. Well, you're saying that that's the number we owe. What I was saying is that when there is this amicable divorce there will be a negotiation and a settlement there may be even have some lawsuits i I would hate to see that but uh, it's happened with sandy springs it's happened with brookhaven it's happened with most any city that is having a de-annexation from within do you have any support from state lawmakers oh yeah we had 105 assemblymen vote in favor of uh, our bill on the last day of the previous session, uh, there was 65 uh, votes no. And that, uh, if you look at what would happen next year, you need a simple majority. So you only need 92 votes next year for this to be put on the ballot. Well, we got 105. So I don't know what that tells you. It tells me we have tremendous support. Um, and we're very much looking forward to that vote sometime in April of 2022. You mentioned crime. You said crime, crime, crime is the main reasons behind Buckhead becoming a city, among some other concerns you all have. And Mr. White, there are other objects here as it relates to race and class and the perception of Buckhead, an affluent community wanting to carve itself away from the city of Atlanta. How do you respond to that as the leader of this group? Oh, well, I don't know. People who, you know, don't know me, Rose, you don't know me. We haven't met. We haven't had a nice dinner. Um, We haven't been able to get together. This is our first time talking. Um, Those people that know me uh, know when I say this, it comes from my heart. Uh, Talk about race and anything related to race has nothing to do with anything that we're doing. I think it's very hurtful to me personally. It's it, it seems like it's very divisive. It's not helpful. Uh, And I know one thing, it's not going to solve any of these problems saying uh, that folks in Buckhead are leaving Atlanta for some reason related to race. I will say, um, talking to many of my neighbors who are 
multi-ethnic, multicultural. Uh, they're all encouraging me, and uh, they're not um, feeling this way, as you've described. I know that's a tactic of, uh, it may, I shouldn't say a tactic. I know it's something that's being said, and we respect that. We have some very serious race issues in this country still. Uh, it's abhorrent, the things that have happened uh, related to that. And I can tell you one thing, it's not in my heart uh, anything to do with this. If it ever is brought up, I haven't heard it. Uh, if it was, I would smack it down. Mr. White, there will be a new Atlanta mayor. Why not give that mayor an opportunity to address the concerns? Because with the mayoral election coming up, in November, that's far more shorter time than the time it could take for you all to actually become a city. So why not give the new mayor an opportunity to address your concerns? Yeah. Well, uh, that's a, to me, that's that sounds wonderful in a perfect world. But um, I say this to everybody. It sounds slightly sarcastic, and I apologize in advance. But I've talked to a very good friend of mine, and she says, Bill, uh, whenever they ask you that question, just remind them that the uh, clinical definition of insanity is when we keep doing the same thing over and over and over again, expecting a different result. So I. But would when love is Buckhead? Well, but here's I the thing: what is that? What is that same thing that's over and over and getting the same result? What are you referring to? Uh, I'm referring to us thinking that some election of some new person is going to bring about a different result when none of those people who are running, I'm just saying the premise is that they uh, would be able to help us. Well, we haven't heard from them at all uh, since you and I are talking today and believe them they're going to make all these changes. So you're saying no mayoral candidate has spoken to you all as a Not one, not one. Have you reached out to them? It's a disgrace. Uh, no, I have not. Okay, Mr. White, as we wrap up, lawmakers yes, will return later in the year. You seem to be very optimistic in getting this yes. approval to let residents vote on cityhood. In between that time and now, what will your group be doing? Do you have support of the business community? Are there other sectors in Buckhead that you all need to convince to come to your side and support this Buckhead city movement? A hundred percent. Yes. Uh, the answer is uh, we uh, thank you for asking us to come on your show. As, as I said, my family loves your show. I, I'm going to start listening to the show. I promise is we're going to have to start convincing a lot of people. We are talking to people every day. Uh, we've raised about 600,000 of the 1.5 million that we need. I've been told by all of our supporters will have the requisite amount of money we need to make this a success. Uh, we are calling for emergency hearings because of the crime spree. Our feasibility study will be done in about 12 weeks, as I said. Bill White, CEO and chair of the Buckhead City Committee, formerly known as the Buckhead Exploratory Committee. What do you think, listeners? Send me an email, rose at wabe.org, or tweet me at wabe rose scott, and let me know your thoughts. Mr. White, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. God bless you, Rose. Thanks so much, and I appreciate all this time. You've been so kind. Thank you, sir. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. It had been some time since a new federal holiday was established. The last Martin Luther King Jr. Day, signed into law back in 1983 by then-President Ronald Reagan. This week, history again, as President Joe Biden signed a bill to establish Juneteenth as a federal holiday. If you're not sure of the details regarding June 19, 1865, Juneteenth, historian and Georgia State Assistant Professor Tiffany Player, who also specializes in African-American history, U.S. history, and women's history, well, she's going to explain it all to you. Professor Player, thank you for taking the time. This is your NPR debut. <laughs> thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Let's begin here because I do think it's fitting to begin by recognizing the tenacity of, of one woman who was in attendance as President Biden signed the bill. 
making Juneteenth a federal law. And that woman is 94-year-old Opal Lee, which I know you are familiar with. Uh, what do you want to say about her as we get started? I mean, I think, you know, her presence, her efforts to kind of get this to become, you know, kind of federally recognized is just the epitome of the significance of Juneteenth as um, an important moment in American history. I mean, and I think it really, the fact that we see this living, breathing woman who is an elder in her community um, and the work that she's done over the decades to kind of try to make this a reality. And it is wonderful that she was able to be a part of that signing um, this week. And so let me ask you this, Professor, did you ever hold in your mind possibility of Juneteenth becoming a federal holiday? Honestly, um, no, not a federal holiday. I mean, in part because of just the politics involved and the significant struggle and debate that ensued over commemorating Martin Luther King Jr. Um, as, you know, a national hero and um, honoring him with the federal Holiday. So I did not think that this would happen. Um, but, you know, I think the fact that Juneteenth is bigger than kind of this commemoration as a federal holiday, mm -hmm. it has always been um, a basis for community activism um, and for family, you know, kind of traditions. And so I think in that way, it's great that this happened this week and that we are around to kind of witness it. But I also think the spirit of Juneteenth um, has a much longer history than um, a federal holiday. And that's kind of what I really wanna um, kind of touch on a bit today. Mm -hmm. And we'll talk about that because I wanna get your thoughts on this. What is most often repeated as a fact regarding Juneteenth, but it really isn't accurate. I mean, I think for a lot of people um, in the United States who kind of want to distill history into really discrete factoids, they want kind of when was the end of slavery. So they'll point to the Emancipation Proclamation, which actually didn't end slavery. Um, they'll point to um, Juneteenth, for example, as the date in which slavery end, ended, and that wasn't the case. The 13th Amendment actually ratified in December 1865, um, provided the legal, you know, kind of basis for abolishing the institution of slavery, except um, with regards to the commission of a crime. And so, you know, I think that's the fact that is usually like repeated oftentimes like this is when slavery ended or that enslaved you know enslaved people in Texas um, actually weren't aware of the developments of the Civil War mm -hmm. or that um, Major General Granger when he arrived in Galveston, Texas um, on June 19th, 1865, um, that he was kind of announcing something that people were ignorant of. And I think that that does a disservice to the memory of people who were living during that time. They were absolutely aware of what was going on, but they were held um, by people who wanted to perpetuate the institution of slavery. And I think we should note, and we, you can touch on this too, because you are the historian, when we talk about that day, June 19th, 1865, but in the significance of that moment of General Granger on that day in Texas, what happened after that? What was the movement after that? Sure. Um, I mean, when G Major General Granger um, arrived in um, Galveston, Texas, I mean, he did so with nearly 1,800 Union soldiers, um, some of whom were African-American men. So imagine this, um, you know, kind of contingent of Union military might really able to kind of subdue the last vestiges of the Confederate Trans-Mississippi um, Army, right? I mean, this is, Texas is the westernmost Confederate state. Um, fighting continued after General Lee had surrendered at Appomattox Courthouse um, in April 1865. Um, and so, you know, Granger going in, one of the issues with the Emancipation Proclamation is that it required or relied on the um, advance of Union troops. And so, 
with the, the fact that the Emancipation Proclamation um, kind of proclaimed that, that enslaved people who were in the states that were in rebellion against the United States um, were now free, it could only be enforced if union forces were able to kind of make that happen. And that's what happened on that in uh, June 19th, 1865. And so having enslaved people, you know, kind of hear this proclamation that the people of Texas um, are informed that all slaves are free was a powerful message that Granger was delivering alongside African-American men who had risked their physical safety to um, kind of um, usher in the end of the institution of slavery. And Professor Player, for folks who may not know, at this time, had Texas, you mentioned in rebellion of, of the rest of the nation, but had, was Texas the only state that had still had enslaved Black folks at this time? No. So the Emancipation Proclamation is a really interesting you know, kind of document. And I mean, it's a very political document and it was a document that was crafted for military expedience. And so you have, you have border states like Maryland, like Delaware, like Kentucky, like Missouri, who have um, enslaved people who were allowed to keep enslaved people because they remained in the union. I mean, the Emancipation Proclamation was directed towards Confederate states. It made it difficult for the um, Union forces to um, kind of exert military influence over Confederate occupied territories. So as Union forces are gaining more victories, um, they are able to kind of go in to these Confederate occupied territories and liberate enslaved people. And so Texas ends up being one of the last places in which enslaved people are um, kind of notified that they now have the protection of the US military um, and that the institution of slavery um, is on its way out. If you're just joining the program, this is Closer Look and I'm Rose Scott. And the conversation at the moment is about Juneteenth, now a federal holiday. My guest is historian and assistant professor of history at Georgia State University, Tiffany Player. Professor Player, you just said moments ago, let's clear this up. Slavery did not end on Juneteenth. You made that very clear. Take that further for our listeners. Right. It is the 13th Amendment that's ratified in December 1865 that ushers in the legal you know, kind of end to the institution of slavery. But Juneteenth becomes, or June 19th, becomes the symbolic end for the institution of slavery, um, in part because of the proclamation that's issued by General Granger. And, you know, having the presence of African-Americans um, kind of hearing this um, is something that, you know, Juneteenth became a holiday that was celebrated um, primarily in Texas or originated in Texas and then spread to other African-American communities. But it's more symbolic than um, kind of legal in its um, foundation. So let's move to the present and now because in this moment, Juneteenth is now a federal holiday, but given all the concerns about critical race theory being taught in our schools, there's some irony in all of this, right? <laughs> um, yes, I mean, I think that, you know, just in kind of like reading about how this came to be, the speed with which this um, new federal holiday was put, um, was made a reality is something that I think um, is certainly indicative of our present moment, kind of the dual arguments about CRT, critical race theory, and the um, kind of celebration of Juneteenth as a national holiday. Juneteenth has always been about um, kind of an honest reckoning with the centrality of slavery to the economic development of the United States, the contributions of African-Americans to United States culture and economics, um, and kind of dealing with the promise of equality in the United States. And so those are essential elements of any kind of meaningful and honest commemoration of Juneteenth. 
Um, and so in that sense, it's a wonderful um, kind of milestone in a really long fight to kind of get slavery recognized as, as central to American history and the contributions of African-Americans to that, um, to that history. The debate- so, oh, yeah. oh, No, you finish. Oh, I was just gonna say the debates about critical race theory um, are really, you know, the, the arguments that critics of CRT often make about wanting to get rid of um, content that is divisive or um, makes people uncomfortable, you know, really kind of elides the, um, the truth of American history as um, really steeped in ideas about Black people that have been used to exploit them um, in terms of labor or, you know, in our present moment in terms of mass incarceration, um, et cetera. And so I think we are, um, it's very American in a way that these things are happening at the same time, this kind of accomplishment and milestone and these debates about CRT and the efforts by some people to um, kind of silence discussions about race and slavery in the United States. So in other words, we have this national holiday, Juneteenth, but we shouldn't teach to the kids why we needed Juneteenth to begin with. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it's, um, I mean, Juneteenth is ideal in the sense that the, the spirit of Juneteenth, the people who have been a part of these um, commemorations at a very grassroots level have always been about educating their communities and educating their public, uh, educating the public about slavery, um, letting survivors tell their stories, making the connection between the institution of slavery in the past and the its legacies in our present moment. And so that's always been a part of Juneteenth. And I think that having it recognized as a federal holiday can provide us with a much needed opportunity to engage with some of these issues um, in a way that um, talking about maybe other issues in, in American history um, might be easier for critics to kind of latch onto. I mean, Juneteenth, you cannot separate enslavement, exploitation, um, emancipation, survival from Juneteenth. And let's also add in, if you wanna talk about voting rights and voting laws, which of course, as you know, uh, states are grappling with. Yes. I mean, I think that Congress has yet to pass an anti-lynching legislation. So all that you're saying, all that is is Juneteenth could be this this platform for how we now need to move the conversations or policies, or legislations, or even acknowledgement of with these other these other issues that well they're longstanding. We talk about voting rights and anti-lynching legislation. Absolutely. I mean, I think in part because it always has been that way. I mean, Juneteenth commemorations have been about family reunions, community activism. I mean, there's always been an activist kind of component to um, community celebrations of Juneteenth, even when they were primarily attended by African-Americans. And Juneteenth celebrations were essential for African-American communities when the gains of reconstruction were eroded by white supremacy supremacist violence and disenfranchisement and segregation. And so I think, you know, we are kind of, unfortunately, having to literally follow in the footsteps of um, our, our ancestors in terms of trying to um, maintain equality and equity in um, American society. But Juneteenth celebrations have always kind of served that function, and they've been sustaining for communities in times of peril. And um, one could argue that this is just another moment of, uh, of peril um, in a long history for African-Americans and their, and their allies. As a historian, not just in US history, but women's history and African-American history, let's say 25 years from now, 50 years from now, the significance of Juneteenth becoming a holiday. What is your hope that in between now and then, 
that Juneteenth will serve as some part of the movement, the overall movement for equity and, and equality and the fight against all those isms that so many people have been fighting against in this nation? Well, it's my hope that in commemorating Juneteenth, it gives us an opportunity to kind of have really honest and difficult conversations and about race, about slavery, um, and kind of have a sincere reckoning with inequities in American society. Um, and schools have an important function in that role. Um, and so I think instead of just kind of celebrating a triumphalist narrative of, okay, slavery is over and then African-Americans are now somehow responsible for every single thing that happens to them without thinking about and understanding the systemic challenges that people are facing, um, Juneteenth can offer an opportunity to kind of revisit, reflect on those issues, to talk to people who have lived through different times of struggle. Um, and it can offer opportunities for collaborative um, kind of activism because we are all inheritors of this history, whether our ancestors were enslaved or not. And I think Juneteenth in that way is a very ideal American holiday because it has always been about inclusion and about facing the truth, certainly showcasing progress, but also dealing with um, contemporary inequities. And that's my hope um, 25 years from now that it is easier to have those kinds of conversations that we have addressed some of those inequities um, and that Juneteenth can be kind of a cornerstone this you know, holiday as a cornerstone for those kinds of um, sustained engagements. Historian and Georgia State Assistant Professor in History, Tiffany Player, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. This is, uh, I'm glad I could do my debut with you. Uh, thank you so much, Professor. Thank you so much for joining us. And now to celebrate Juneteenth, listen to a reading of the Emancipation Proclamation by our good friends at NPR. By the President of the United States of America, a proclamation, whereas on the 22nd day of September, in the year of our Lord, 1862, a proclamation was issued by the President of the United States, containing, among other things, the following, to wit, that on the first day of January in the year of our Lord, 1863, all persons held as slaves within any state or designated part of a state, the people whereof shall then be in rebellion against the United States, shall be then, thenceforward, and forever free. And the executive government of the United States, including the military and naval authority thereof, will recognize and maintain the freedom of such persons, and will do no act or acts to repress such persons, or any of them, in any efforts they make for their actual freedom. That the executive will, on the first day of January aforesaid, by proclamation, designate the states and parts of states, if any, in which the people thereof, respectively, shall then be in rebellion against the United States. And the fact that any state or the people thereof shall on that day be in good faith represented in the Congress of the United States by members chosen thereto at elections, wherein a majority of the qualified voters of such states shall have participated, shall, in the absence of strong countervailing testimony, be deemed conclusive evidence that such state and the people thereof are not then in rebellion against the United States. Now, therefore, I, Abraham Lincoln, President of the United States, by virtue of the power in me vested as Commander-in-Chief, of the Army and Navy of the United States in time of actual armed rebellion against the authority and government of the United States and as a fit and necessary war measure for suppressing said rebellion do on this first day of January in the year of our Lord 1863 and in accordance with my purpose so to do publicly proclaimed for the full period of 100 days from the day first above mentioned order and designate as the states and parts of states wherein the people thereof respectively are this day in rebellion against the United States the following to wit Arkansas, Texas, Louisiana, except for the parishes of St. Bernard, 
Plaquemines, Jefferson, St. John, St. Charles, St. James Ascension, Assumption, Terrebonne, Lafouche, St. Mary, St. Martin, and Orleans, including the city of New Orleans, Mississippi, Alabama. Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, and Virginia, except the 48 counties designated as West Virginia and also the counties of Berkeley, Accomack, Northampton, Elizabeth City, York, Princess Anne, and Norfolk, including the cities of Norfolk and Portsmouth, and which accepted parts are, for the present, left precisely as if this proclamation were not issued. And by virtue of the power and for the purpose aforesaid, I do order and declare that all persons held as slaves within said designated states and parts of states are, and henceforward, shall be free. And that the executive government of the United States, including the military and naval authorities thereof, will recognize and maintain the freedom of said persons. And I hereby enjoin upon the people so declared to be free to abstain from all violence unless in necessary self-defense. And I recommend to them that in all cases when allowed, they labor faithfully for reasonable wages. And I further declare and make known that such persons of suitable condition will be received into the armed service of the United States to garrison forts, positions, stations, and other places, and to man vessels of all sorts in said service. And upon this act, sincerely believed to be an act of justice, warranted by the Constitution, upon military necessity, I invoke the considerate judgment of mankind and the gracious favor of Almighty God. In witness whereof, I have hereunto set my hand and caused the seal of the United States to be affixed, done at the city of Washington this first day of January in the year of our Lord 1863, and of the independence of the United States of America the 87th, by the President Abraham Lincoln. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder to send us your feedback on all the conversations and features you hear on the program. Just send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's always online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.